Well, when was the last time you were astonished by something? When was the last time you marveled at something? Now, for me, it was yesterday watching the Vikings come back and beat the Colts. Did you guys see that? <laughs> Uh, the Vikings, if you weren't paying attention, they were down 33 to nothing at half, and they came back and they won in overtime 39 to 36. It was the largest comeback in NFL history, proving conclusively that God still does miracles. That is, that is the evidence for the miraculous there. And I think it is good to marvel because we live in a marvelous world. And if there's anything that you should marvel at, it is at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And this is what we are considering during this time of the year. And it shouldn't only be during the Christmas time, but we should definitely consider the incarnation of Christ during this time of the year. And there are so many wonderful things happening this time of the year, so many wonderful uh, distractions, Christmas parties, traveling, Christmas gifts. I mean, the list goes on and on, and all of those things are good and worthwhile things. But I want to encourage you just to spend a little bit of time this morning marveling at Christ just give your attention to the, the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ, he became a man, and he lived for us, and he died for us, and he rose for us. And I want to give you two reasons you should marvel at the incarnation here this morning. And they're just two words. The first word is the word became. Became. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the claim of Christmas is clear, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Word. He is, he is the creator of everyone and everything, and he became flesh. He became a human being. And I hope for the rest of your life, I'm serious about this, I hope for the rest of your life, whenever you read John 1.14 and you read the verse, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When you see that word became, you just pause for a moment and you worship God. You just marvel at this reality that the Word became Flesh. Now, why should you marvel at this truth? Well, Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian, he used a Latin phrase to describe God. He said that God is actus puris, actus puris. In English, it is pure act or pure actuality. And pure act speaks of the absolute perfection of God, that God is all that he can be, infinitely real and infinitely perfect, that God does not have potential that he's growing into. God is not developing, he's not changing, he's not adapting, and he's not getting better. He is perfect, and he has been perfect forever. He is complete. He is infinite in all of his attributes. Human beings, on the other, side, uh, on the other hand, we are in a constant state of change. We are always changing. We are in a state of becoming. We learn and we forget, we get stronger and we get weaker, we grow wiser or we grow foolish and all of us are getting older and older. We are becoming, we are in a constant state of change. If you don't believe me, look at a picture of yourself from 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Now here's a picture of Meg and I 15 years ago on our wedding, on our wedding day. 15 years ago, we were just babies then, but two or three years ago, there's a little boy at our house, and we love this little boy. He's been at our house probably a hundred times. We know him really well, and uh, he was in our living room, and he just stopped for a moment, and he saw this picture, and he was staring at the picture, and I was in the room, and my son Jet was in the room, and he looks at the picture, and he goes, hey, Jet, who did your mommy marry in this picture? That's what he said. <laughs> and Jet looks at me, he goes, that's my dad. He goes, no, that's not your dad, and Jet's like, no, that's my dad. And then the boy looks at the picture, he looks at me, he looks at the picture, he looks at me, and he goes, that's not you, Mr. Rude, uh, that guy is too fat to be you. <laughs> now, I didn't know if that was a compliment or not, um, 
But I said, thank you, young man. You're always welcome here at my house. So, but we are in a constant state of change. This is the essence of being a human being. We're always changing. But God does not change. He is immutable. And this is significant because nearly half of the evangelical church in America believes that God changes. Nearly half. There was a massive study done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research called the State of Theology Survey. And what they do is they survey evangelicals from all around the country. It's a very big study, and they make these statements. So they'll make a statement, and then they'll ask you, do you agree, disagree, or are you unsure? And so here's the statement, if you want to put the statement up. Statement four, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Remember, these are people who are self-proclaimed Christians who go to Bible-believing churches. They believe in the authority of the scriptures, allegedly. And according to the survey, Uh, 48% of evangelicals agree with that statement, that God learns and adapts to different circumstances, that he's growing and changing, he's learning and adapting, that he is not immutable. But in order for God to be God, he must be perfect in his being. This is what God means when he says in Exodus 3.14, this is what he says to Moses, I am that I am. I am that I am. It means that God is. He is not becoming He is not changing. If God changed, he would change for the better or for the worse. If he changed for the worse, this means that he's no longer perfect and therefore not God. And if he changed for the better, it means that he wasn't perfect and therefore not God. But God is pure act. He is perfect. He is complete. And he is infinite in all of his attributes. Just consider the power of God for a moment. That God is infinite in power. Do you believe that? He is infinite in power, infinite in might. inexhaustible in his strength. He created the universe by speaking it into being. That's all he did. He spoke and it happened. And God, after he created the heavens and the earth, he did not grow weary. His power level was at 100%, complete. And he could have spoken a billion universes into existence, a trillion universes into existence, and his power would not have been diminished one bit, one whatsoever. And when you think about that reality, it should blow our minds. Our sun is one average star. And every second, our, our sun produces four trillion trillion watts of energy. Now, I had no idea what that meant, so I looked into it. Now, 400 trillion trillion watts of energy is one trillion megaton bombs. I didn't know what that meant either. And so I looked into what a megaton bomb is. And a one megaton bomb would destroy 80 square miles of life. One bomb, boom. And every second, the sun produces one trillion, the energy of one trillion megaton bombs. The Boston Globe says every second, the sun produces enough energy to power the current energy needs of the entire world for 500,000 years. And this is one star in the universe. NASA says there's enough stars in the known universe for each person to have 17 trillion stars to themselves. This is just one, this is one star, then you multiply it by billions and billions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions, and God just spoke it into being, not diminished in power in and, and one bit whatsoever. God is infinite in power. We are not infinite in power. We are not infinite in might. We run out of power every day. Half the time we run out of energy before lunch, and we often need a nap just to make it through the day after lunch. We reach the end of our strength every day. He's perfect, complete, infinite in his power. Or consider the love of God. Jeremiah 31 says 
that God has loved us with an everlasting love. With an everlasting love. Psalm 103 says, the unfailing love of God is from eternity to eternity. How long has God known you? How long have have you been in the mind of God? Forever. He's known every detail about you forever and ever and ever. And how long has God loved you? Forever. There's not one second in all of eternity past where God did not know you and love you. His love does not ebb or flow. We are so fickle in our love. We get passionate about a person, our affections grow for a person, and then they diminish the very next day. But God is not hot and cold, hot or cold towards us. He's at 100% perfect, endless love. He knows every detail about us, and yet his love for us is unending. And this is the way God is in all of his attributes. He is pure act. He is endless, infinite, perfect, unchanging. He is not becoming. And for how long has this been the case? How long has God been pure act? Forever. Forever. But then in John 1.14, this is what John says. The word became. Whoa. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So how can the changeless one, the God who is pure act, become anything other than what he is? How is it possible that he became flesh? This is the mystery that Christians have marveled at for 2,000 years. First, First Timothy 3.16 says, without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. What is it? Well, there's a list of things in verse 16, but first on the list, Christ was revealed in a human body, that he became flesh. So how do we make sense of the mystery of the incarnation, that the changeless one became flesh? Well, in church history, in the year 451 AD, you find what is called the Creed of Chalcedon. And Chalcedon is a city in eastern Turkey, and great Christian leaders and thinkers gathered in Chalcedon, eastern Turkey, and they gathered for two reasons. First was to confirm the doctrine of the incarnation, not to create it, but to confirm it, to codify it. And second was to guard against Christological heresy. There was much Christological heresy in the world back then and in the church, just like there's a lot of Christological heresy in our world and in the church today. That same survey, the State of Theology survey done by Ligonier and Lifeway Research, they made another statement about Christ, if you want to put that up there, statement seven. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Who agrees with that statement? U.S. evangelical finding, 43% agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. That, that is heresy. That is a damning heresy. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be born again unless you believe in the Son of God, that he is the Word who became flesh, the eternal creator of everyone and everything. And so the Creed of Chalcedon has stood the test of time for the past 1,500 years, and it helps us make sense out of what the Bible teaches regarding the incarnation. And in the Creed, there are five basic claims. Here are the claims. Here's the first one. Claim number one, Jesus has two natures. He is God and man. He is God and man. John 1:14. the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when the Son of God became flesh, did he stop being God? No. Okay, but if he didn't stop being God, then was he actually a man? Yes, he was actually a man. He has two natures, God and man. John Owen, the famous Puritan, said he became what he was not. Jesus became what he was not, a man. But he ceased not to be what he was, God. He remained God. 
and became a man. Claim number two, each nature is full and complete. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. Colossians 2.9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So it's not part, Christ is not part of God, just like a little bit of God. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Hebrews 2.17, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Christ is fully human in every way, yet, just like us, yet without sin. So Jesus did not just appear to be a human. He didn't put on a human suit. He became a human being. Claim number three, each nature remains distinct. Each nature remains distinct. The deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ did not mingle. They did not mix. Jesus is not a third type of being, something in between God and something in between man. Like we said last week, Jesus is not a centaur, part man, part, part, man, part God. Uh, uh, a centaur is a myth- mythological, ancient mythological creature that's half man and half horse. I googled centaur this week just to see what would happen, and there's a lot of pictures, but this, this one popped up pretty quick. This is Tim Tebow as a centaur horse, but, but see, he's half, so that's half Tim Tebow and half horse, how, however you want to break it down. This is not Jesus. Jesus is not half God or part God and part human. He's not like this blend this hybrid between God and man. And this is significant. Think with me. This is significant because if God does not change, then how can God become a man and not change? If God cannot change, if he's immutable and God became a man, how did he not change? Here's the answer. In the incarnation, the deity of the Son of God remains entirely intact. In the incarnation, the deity of the Son of God remains entirely intact. So when the Son of God became a man, his deity did not change. His power remained infinite, endless, the same. His mercy remained the same. His love, his holiness, his knowledge, the essence of God did not change. So God does not change in the incarnation. Rather, the Son of God adds to himself humanity without changing his deity. So this is, I'm going to give you an illustration, and whenever you give illustrations about the incarnation or the Trinity, the Trinity you're, you're, uh, you're asking for trouble, but I think this is a helpful picture. Just imagine for a moment, this is not real, okay, but imagine a giant mixing bowl, giant mixing bowl, and what's in the bowl? God. God's in the mixing bowl. Imagine you have a cup of humanity or several cups of humanity, and imagine you throw the humanity into deity and you mix it all up. What would happen in that scenario? That would never happen, but you know what I'm saying. What would happen in that scenario? The deity of God would change. And the humanity, the humanity, human nature would change. But this is not what happens in the incarnation. The deity and humanity of Christ, they do not mix. They remain distinct. Think about that for a while. Claim number four, Christ is only one person. Christ is only one person. There were two primary heresies, Christological heresies, that Chalcedon was guarding against. The first heresy is that Jesus is not fully God or fully man, but something in between, a hybrid. They're, they're saying, no, 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 that's, that's, that's a rejection of the scriptures. That's heresy. He is fully God and fully man. So they're, they're guarding against that heresy. The second heresy is that Jesus is two persons. They would say, yeah, Jesus is God and Jesus is is man, and he's two persons. There's actually two people. 
But what the scriptures teach is that Jesus is fully God and fully man and one person. One person. If he has two persons, the Trinity is disrupted. He is one person with two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature not mixed together. Claim number five. Things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. Things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. So here's the way to think about it. What is true of Jesus in his deity is true of Christ. And what is true of Jesus in his humanity is true of Christ. So these are true statements. Jesus knows all things. And Jesus had to learn how to count. That is a true statement. He knows all things and he had to learn how to count. It is true that Jesus created math and he had to learn how to add. It is true that Jesus, the incarnate Christ, spoke the universe into existence and he had to learn how to speak. He is fully human, fully God. Just like you had to learn how to speak, he had to learn how to speak. It's true that Jesus is infinite in power and Jesus fell asleep on a boat in a storm because he was tired. That is true. This is the mystery of the incarnation that he became flesh. And I hope you just, I hope you don't just skip over that. Oh, that's God in the flesh, next thing. I hope you don't do that. I hope you take this time of the year just to ponder that reality. That he became, he became flesh. It is a marvelous mystery. The second reason to marvel is the word revealed. Revealed. So why did Jesus come? Why did he come? He came for a million reasons. The Bible gives us so many reasons why Christ came. But John 1.18 gives us one reason. This is what it says. No one has ever seen God. John says no one has ever seen God. Now you're thinking to yourself, what in the world? No one has seen God. What does that even mean? Well, the Old Testament is filled with partial revelations of God. That in the Old Testament, God is revealing himself bit by bit, bit by bit, bit by bit. Think about the burning bush with, Mo- with Moses or the ten plagues that God sent against Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea or the pillar of cloud during the day, the pillar of fire at night in the desert. Or think about the tabernacle in Acts, or not Acts, Exodus chapter 29 when God says, I'm going to make my dwelling place among Israel in the tabernacle, the tent meeting. Or think about Moses up on the mountain when he saw just a glimpse of the glory of God and his face was shining when he received the law. Or think about the temple that God used Solomon to build a temple in Jerusalem where his presence would be. Or the prophets proclaiming the word of God all throughout the Old Testament. And all of these are partial revelations of the greatness and glory of God. But what John says is this in verse 18, no one has ever seen him. No one has ever seen him. You've seen a little reflection of his glory a little glimpse of his greatness. But no one has ever seen him. Then he goes on to say, the one and only son who is himself God, the son who is God, the one and only son who is himself God is at the father's side. He ascended after his life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, he's at the father's side. He has revealed him. So why did Christ come? He came to reveal God to the world. A summary statement of verse 18 is that the word became flesh to reveal God. That in the incarnation, the invisible God became visible. 
Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. That he came to us. He didn't just appear to be a man, he became a man. This is why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And when, when John saw the glory of Christ, what did he see? What is God like? John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the Father. I love this. Full of grace and truth. What did they see? He's glorious and he is full of grace and truth. He's overflowing with grace and truth. Several commentators mentioned this week a principle in the scriptures that I think is helpful. It's that in the scriptures, grace saves, truth frees. Grace saves, truth frees. Paul says this time and time again that we are saved, how? By his grace. And Jesus says, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is a somewhat artificial distinction, but I believe it's principally true. That Jesus came, he came to save, set people free. He came to give people new life through the grace and truth of God. He is the grace of God incarnate. Paul says that, Paul talks about in Titus how the grace of God has appeared. That Christ is the grace of God made manifest. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth made manifest. This is what the disciples saw. And he wasn't glorious because he had a halo around his head. He didn't have a perfectly manicured beard all the time. That everyone said, That's, that beard's from heaven. This is not what's happening. What they saw in Christ, the glory of God, was one who was full of grace and truth. And what I want to do with the rest of our time as we consider the incarnation of Christ is I want to highlight four gifts of grace and truth that Jesus has given us. Part of the, part of the Christmas season is we give gifts. The word for grace, charis in the Greek is the word gift. It's the word gift. And so I just want, I want you to consider some of the implications of Christ coming into the world. What he has given us that we do not deserve but we have because of what he's done. Four gifts of grace. There are a thousand. We've been blessed in the heavenlies. With every spiritual blessing, we've been given so much, but four gifts. One, we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God because Christ came into the world and dwelt among us. He lived for us, died for us, rose for us. We are, if you're in Christ, we are the temple of the living God. To be a Christian is to be justified by faith in Christ. Not by our works, but by faith in Christ. It is a gift of God's grace. And if you are justified by faith in Christ, you are at peace with God. You are no longer an enemy of God. You are no longer a stranger to God. Rather, you are a child of God. You're made a child of God by the grace of God. And if you are a child of God, you stand currently, right now, you stand in a position of grace. And you're in a position of grace because you are in Christ, and maybe better yet, because Christ is in you. He's in you. The first temple in the scriptures is the Garden of Eden, where God walked with Adam and Eve, but we blew it. And then God chose to dwell among the nation of Israel in a giant tabernacle. You see that in Exodus 29, but we blew it. And then God built a temple. He used Solomon to build a temple in Jerusalem where the presence of God was, but we blew it. And all of these temples... These dwellings 
where, where God decided to dwell with man, to walk with man. They're all pointing to Christ coming into the world. So John says finally in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh and he dwelt among us, not in a tent, but in a human body. The Greek word dwelt is the word skeneo. It means to tabernacle. John is directing our eyes back to Exodus chapter nine, where God, he came to be among us. And see, Christ came to dwell among us that he might dwell in us. That's the point. He came to dwell among us that he might dwell in us, that through his life, death, and resurrection, we might become the temple of God. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about God coming near. It's about God coming near to us. How near? 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? See, to be a Christian is to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit who is in us, that we are the temple, we become the temple of the living God, that what Christ does is he comes into our life and he cleanses us inwardly. He forgives all of our sins and he makes us righteous. He, put, he positions us, he, he makes us stand in a position of grace. We stand under his grace and then he gives us his Holy Spirit. So how near can we be to God? He's in us. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is in us. He's in you. You can have fellowship. The purpose, and the purpose of God being in us is that we might walk with God, that we might have fellowship with God forever. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is to have fellowship with God forever through the blood of Christ. And so we are a temple. We are the temple of the living God. So you can walk with God as much as you want, as much as you're willing but are you even willing to walk with him? Are you willing? It's a gift that we've been made the temple of the living God. Gift number two, Jesus will never give up on you. Jesus will never give up on you. If you are saved by the grace of God, if you stand in a position of grace, if you've been made a child of God, if you're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, if you are a child of God, he'll never give up on you. Certainly, he'll discipline you when you sin because he loves us, but he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. See, Christ was forsaken on the cross. He died on the cross. He was forsaken by his Father. He tasted the wrath of God. He drank the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He was forsaken at the cross so that he would never forsake you. You deserve to be forsaken. You deserve to be abandoned by God forever in hell, but Christ was abandoned for us, so he would never leave us. How do you know God will never leave you? How do you know that? How do you know he'll never leave you or forsake you? Because Christ was forsaken for us. Jesus says, no one can take you out of my hand. No one. The devil cannot take you out of his hand. See, Christ is the good shepherd of our souls and he will just keep coming after us over and over and over again. I remember when I was in college, uh, I was wrestling with some some guilt and some shame that I had because of sin in my life. Just some areas of sin where it's like I would make progress and I just, it's like I just couldn't, I couldn't quite get over it. And uh, I remember a bunch of us, we went on a road trip uh, to the ocean. We did that a couple of times, but I remember just standing in the ocean and just thinking about the grace of God and thinking about my own shame, my own guilt, and just wondering, God, are you ever gonna, are you ever gonna just get sick of me and get rid of me because I'm kind of sick of me right now are you going to give up and this verse 
This verse in John 1, 16, it says this. It says, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. And just standing in the ocean, just thinking about one wave after another just coming. It just keeps coming. And imagine standing in the ocean, your back is to the ocean, you're looking towards the beach, and a wave comes and lands against you, boom. And you wonder to yourself, is another wave coming? And then a few seconds later, another wave comes, boom. And you're like, is another wave coming? I don't know. Is it, is it coming? Boom. And what you know if you're in the ocean is that it's just one wave after another. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. And when you think about the grace of God, because of what Christ has done, we have become the objects of God's grace forever. That's what we are. We are the objects. We are the trophies of his grace forever. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It is a never-ending flood of grace to those who are in Christ. And see, the good news of the incarnation, the good news of the life of Christ, the good news of the cross of Christ, the good news of the resurrection of Christ is that Jesus, what it proves with the life of Christ, God made manifest among us, what it proves forever is that Jesus is infinitely more committed to us than we are to him. He is infinitely more committed to us than we are to him. We are the objects of his grace. Am I saying, go on and sin? No, no. (laughs) Certainly not. But he'll never give up on us. He's the good shepherd of our souls. Gift number three. Gift number three, you can live like Christ. You can live like Christ. Did you know that you don't have to sin anymore? Like you don't have to. You can change. You don't have to keep having a a bad attitude. You don't have to be a victim. You don't have to blame other people. You don't have to hide in your sin. You don't have to be unkind to people. You can follow Christ. You can be full of grace and truth. Not to the same degree, obviously, as Christ. But the whole Christian life is that we are followers of Jesus Christ. We can become more and more like Christ. That's what the Spirit of God is doing in us. That's why he saves us. That he might sanctify us. That one day he might glorify us in Christ. He has made us the object of his grace. That God is giving me every day what I do not deserve. And for all of eternity, we will experience the glory of his grace. And see, we can do the same thing to other people. We can do the same. We can treat... We, can be, we can't give people eternal life, but we can give people favor that they have not earned. We can be kind to other people. We can speak the truth in love. We don't have to be self-centered. We don't have to be lazy. We don't have to be bitter. We don't have to repay insult for insult. We don't have to lie. We can speak the truth in love. And I think it's just a thrilling thought that you can just... Just, God wants you just to be good to people in Christ. Be kind in Christ. Speak the truth in love. You you don't have to, you don't just have to go back and forth with people all the time. We can just be gracious and kind. And I think that kindness in truth, that grace in that truth, that Christ-centered love, it really does abound to the glory of God. And we really are made to live that way. In Christ, you're made to be like Christ and the way you treat other people. And so because of him, we have the power we need to live a righteous life. 
Gift number four. Jesus will return. Jesus will return. His first coming is proof, evidence, that one day he will return again. He will return, and he won't return. He won't come as a baby in a manger. He will come as a victorious king, and he will bring judgment to those who hate him, who have rejected his salvation, and he will bring salvation to those who love him, to those who put their trust in him. So do you know Christ? Have you put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation? If you haven't, you should. And if you know Christ, we, should, we are to look forward to that day. The word for Advent, this is the Advent season, preparing for Christmas. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means the appearing, the parousia, which is often connected to the return of Christ. So Advent is about remembering and celebrating the birth of Christ, and it's about remembering and celebrating the second coming of Christ. That he, he, is, he is going to come again. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship, this is what Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now pay attention to how Paul describes Jesus. It's awesome. Verse 21, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, the savior from heaven, will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So, so think about what he's saying. He will transform the body of our humble condition, that's our bodies. If you're in Christ, he's gonna transform our bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is still a human. He is still fully God, fully man. He has been glorified. So he has a glorified body, but he has, the, he has the body that we will have. He's gonna transform our bodies into his body. And so one day, you will be able to hug God. One day, he will hug you. He will wipe away every tear. And we will get our new bodies, bodies fit for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. We will have flawless bodies, no wheelchairs in heaven, no broken legs in heaven, no blindness in heaven, no zits in heaven. There will be no scars in heaven with the exception of one person. There's one person who will be scarred for eternity. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is after his resurrection in John chapter 20. So the other disciples were telling him, telling Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So Jesus is now, he's in the room. And he looks at Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, so he shows up and he's like, Thomas, I got something for you here. What would you say to Thomas? I'd be like, Thomas, why didn't you believe? Your friends believed? I told you this was gonna happen. He doesn't come to condemn Thomas. Look what he says. He says, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Now what does Thomas do? Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. 
And so in the new heavens and the new earth, the scars of Christ and his glorified body will remain to remind us of why we can be in his presence. Why, why do we have all that we have for all of eternity, a million years into an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ? Why are we here enjoying the grace of God, enjoying fellowship with God and one another, flawless bodies? Why are we here? We are here because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he went to the cross and he died and he rose again that we might be with him forever. So brothers and sisters, Let's celebrate the birth of Christ. And let's marvel at the truth that God became a man to redeem us. And that one day he will come. He will return. We are awaiting a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe this? Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for us. That your love was demonstrated by sending your son into the world. So we praise you, Father. We, we thank you that this life is not all that there is. And I just, I just ask, Lord, if there, if there are people here this, this morning who don't know you, who have not received your gift of eternal life through your son, Jesus, I pray that they would, they would be like Thomas, who would say, my Lord and my God, that they would turn from their sin and embrace you as as Lord, as God, as Savior. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, this is a wonderful time of the year, and I just pray, help us not to get uh, too distracted by all the good and fun things that are happening. Help us to, to remember your birth and help us to celebrate. Help us to celebrate the truth that one day, Lord Jesus, you, you will come again and we'll see you. So we love you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.